we go through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll be in chapter 12 as the Lord allows next week. Uh, but this week, I'm going to take a bit of a deviation uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 14, in just a sermon that's been on my heart, thoughts have been on my heart this week. Um, some of you have lost loved ones in the last week or, or so, and you've gone through those funerals. Others of you have some loved ones who are uh, quite ill and, and death might be imminent to them. And uh, others of you, I know, are going through some very difficult and challenging times in your life, some really hard things, some wilderness, if you will. And uh, we all do. That doesn't necessarily help us when someone says, well, you all go through this. It, it, when you're feeling it, it's pretty crushing. And so this morning, I want to speak to you in the midst of our greatest hurt and our greatest need. Show you these pictures real quick. My sister Martha is here from uh, St. Louis, her and her husband Rich. We're grateful to have them with us. Uh, this is from yesterday. My mom and dad and family are all buried up near Jamesport, Missouri. And if the Lord allows and he doesn't return before I leave this earth, that's where I'll be buried um, there. And uh, I've already found a spot on the ground there. I, Jill and I were up there not too long ago and I laid down on it. I asked her to lay down here by me, but she didn't think that was a very good idea. But, um, <laughs> They, they, they do face the eastern sky, by the way, and it's a beautiful little cemetery up on a hill. You can see that my mom and dad's at the last cemetery. There's just some cattle on the other side of that fence, um, but they're facing the east so that when Jesus returns and that eastern sky opens and they, the dead in Christ will rise first in their resurrected bodies, they'll, they don't have to turn around and look. They can see him face on, so that's why they face the east, but that's my mom and, and my dad. This, of course, is my dad's pulpit that he preached from for many decades. And then the next picture is even more interesting. That's my grandmother and grandfather, Gladys and Everett Harris. But you'll notice the little gravestones, the five of them down the way there. They had 11 children, and five of them died before the age of 18. Uh, four as from childhood diseases, whooping cough, etc. cetera. Uh, one uh, from a, an accidental fire uh, as a teenager. So they buried five of their 11 children in that cemetery. There's a little church right there. My mother was baptized on down that hill as a creek. That's where she and all those siblings were baptized. And I um, often thought when I go there of my, my grandmother and my grandfather uh, having five funerals in that little church and five graves there. Um, and all of that simply to say that tragedy and heartache and wilderness is nothing new. And as God's grace was sufficient for them, his grace is sufficient for us. And uh, also that they are not there, they are present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is just resurrection ground. And one day those bodies, the earth will give up their dead and there'll be new bodies. And we'll have this mortal put on immortality and this corruptible put on incorruption and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So whenever you go to a cemetery and you have loved ones who've passed away in the Lord, you can be confident that they are not in that grave. They are literally present with the Lord. But one day that body is going to renew and come out of that grave. And you may think, well, that's a crazy thing. But I'm going to tell you what, that's a true thing. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's our hope in all things. So let's go to John's Gospel, chapter 14. Man, things have moved really quickly in the ministry of Jesus now. Things are, 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 are really coming to a, a climax, to a focus here. 
And the disciples are sensing that things have sped up. They're also really sensing the tension that's in the air. They're sensing the danger that is all around them. Uh, Jesus has said many things, and we're going to look at those in Matthew's gospel. He really begins to say some things, uh, as we look at next week, that really begin to offend uh, some religious leaders of the day, make him seem like a dangerous figure. And so they realize that he is doing that, and they also understand uh, what might happen. And so they're, they're, they're living in a time here of uncertainty, these disciples are. Uh, they thought they knew where Jesus, what he was doing. They, they kind of thought they knew where he was going. You know, he's, gonna, he's, he's feeding all these thousands of people with a little lunch. He's walking on the water. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's speaking unbelievable truth. And then he doesn't, and he's gathering huge crowds up in Galilee, but he doesn't leverage any of that for his own popularity. He doesn't lever, leverage any of that to, for his own political and financial benefit. In fact, he seems to be doing just the opposite. And so the disciples are really concerned about what the future is. Where is all this going? And Jesus knows that literally in a very short amount of time, a matter of days, things are really going to take a turn. And Judas, you know, we think, we say Judas, you think, oh, that's that evil betrayer like a Benedict Arnold. You've got to remember for the disciples, Judas was one, probably the most trusted disciple they had because they gave him the money, all right? He carried the money. He, he, he came off looking like someone who was one of them. He was a complete deceiver. And how crushing it is when someone that we trust deceives us that way. And we've all had that happen in our lives. And if you haven't, you will someday. And so they're going to find out that one of the 12, not one of the hundreds that hung out with Jesus or followed him around from time to time, betrayed him, but one of the 12 betrayed him. And again, you, you would think they would think, well, Jesus, didn't you know he was going to do that? Why did you let him hang around with us? All kinds of questions. Not only was one of the 12 going to betray him, but he wasn't really going to defend himself. He, he, in fact, when... when, when Peter pulled out his sword to protect him. Jesus said, put that thing away. When Peter tried to cut off the head of a guard, he missed and got his ear. The guard probably ducked, and Jesus picked the ear up and put it back on. What, what is all of this about? And so Jesus knows that in short time, they're going to see Judas betray him. In a short amount of time, they're going to see him being arrested and beaten bloodily beyond recognition. In a very short amount of time, they're going to realize that Jesus has been killed as any human being, although he was God in the form of a human. He died as a human, and he died a human death, and he was dead as dead ever has been and buried into a grave. And how are they going to feel on that Friday evening when they take him down off that cross? And they place him in that tomb. They're going to be crushed, frightened, angry, full of questions, just like you and I are. That so many things that go on in our lives. Still haven't processed everything that happened in that school in Texas. Still haven't processed everything that happened in that grocery store in Buffalo. Still can't process everything that happens every day in the streets and rural cities and rural communities, rather, of, of our nation and all the violence and 
all the hurt and all the death. So all the questions, what's all this mean? Where is God in all of this? And again, that song just kind of speaks to me. I feel like sometimes just in the wilderness here. Why am I here? Where's it going? Jesus knew they and you and I were going to have those experiences. And he wants to speak to that, to the disciples and to you and to me, his followers, this morning through these words, these very familiar words. I, before I went to Alaska this week, I preached a funeral for a 95-year-old lady and I read these words at her funeral. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you're going to be also. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? I mean, just parenthetically, because we're going to look at the lives of the disciples in the next few, after we're through with the book of Matthew. And Thomas is one of the most interesting ones. We call him Doubting Thomas. That's a poor choice of words. He wasn't Doubting Thomas. He was deeply in love with Jesus, Thomas, all right? No doubt Thomas was like some of you in this room. He was always a glass half empty kind of guy. That is true. I mean, he, he really was and probably had been that all of his life. And listen, if you deal with depression and, and anxiety and, and, and you understand how that just wears on you. And that was probably Thomas his whole life. And then he meets Jesus and everything changes. And so for, 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 for he, he's, he's terrified that he's going to lose Jesus. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want Jesus out of his sight. That's why... When Jesus says, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and Peter says, we can't go, they'll, you know, they'll kill you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And, and then Thomas says, well, if you're going to go and die, we'll go and die with you. Doesn't sound like a doubter to me. Sounds like someone who just doesn't want to be separated from Jesus. In fact, the reason he's called Doubting Thomas is because at the night of the resurrection, on Sunday night, the disciples were all there, gathered in, in fear of the Jews, but there was one disciple other than Judas who killed himself that was missing. And who was that disciple? It was Thomas. And why? Well, if you've ever been depressed, you don't want to hang out with people. And I'm sure Thomas was thinking, this is what I'd feared my whole life. Ever since I met Jesus, I thought he was going to leave, and now he's left. So Thomas wasn't even gathered with them. Finally, when Jesus did appear to Thomas, Thomas said, I still can't believe unless I see your hands and your side. In other words, he'd been disappointed so many times in his life. So I just want you to have a different view of Thomas as one who deeply loves Jesus. And that's evident here. He's saying, what do you mean we know where you're going? We want to go where you're going. I love you so much. I can't imagine not being with you. And so Jesus tells him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the core of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. That's also, listen, that's also the offense of the gospel. The world finds that offensive, that the only way to have our sins forgiven, the only way to have a right relationship with our creator, the only way to avoid eternal punishment for our sin is through Jesus Christ. It's not however way we want to make it. It's not whatever path we want to take. It's not all roads lead to heaven. It's this, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. It is an exclusive message. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That is a huge statement of Jesus' incarnation. He is God, the Father. 
He is God. I, I just love to preach that. But I'm going to jump down, if you'll allow me, and we're going to look at these words of Jesus because they, I really want you to see these. Verse 18, so I don't have time to read the entire passage, although if you come to worship here, you realize you guys read a lot of Scripture. Well, that's because the Bible's important. I mean, you can go to some churches and they don't read any Scripture except maybe when they preach a sermon. It's like the Bible's important. We read it about three or four times every Sunday morning because it's, it's, it's what we got. It, it, it's where we get our truth. It, it's important. But look at what Jesus says. He's continued to encourage them and talk to them about who he is and, and, and strengthen them for what's about to happen. But then he says this in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. Father, I ask that you speak to us through the power of your written word and through me that it communicates in a way that opens eyes and unclogs ears and melts hearts so that we can hear you and see you and experience you in all your power and all your truth. Lord, we are mindful of many who are grieving this morning, the loss of loved ones, loss of children, loss of parents, loss of spouses. Some in this room are grieving the loss of people. Some in this room are dreading the future. Some feel like they really are in the wilderness of things. Lord, help us even at this moment to hear you speak directly to us in the midst of our hurt and our pain and our uncertainty. In Jesus' name, amen. Kind of unusual that Jesus would use the phrase orphans to full-grown men. Again, these disciples were not as old as they look in the pictures, okay? I'm just telling you. They, they, they weren't like 60-year-old men with beards when Jesus was walking around with them. They were probably like late teenagers, early 20s. But still, they had long ago left home. They were on their own. What do you mean I'm not going to leave me as orphans? Jesus understood that the things that were about to unfold were going to make them, listen, feel as helpless and as hopeless as orphans. And I don't mean orphans in the 21st century. I mean orphans in the first century. And if you want to know about orphans in the first century, they were the most vulnerable individuals in all of the culture. Their life expectancy was nil. If they were truly an orphan, then all they could do is beg for food. And they were completely vulnerable to anyone who would abuse them. There were no laws to protect them. There was no laws to protect children. They could be taken as slaves. They could be abused. They were totally at the mercy of some whoever came by, of terribly evil people. They were at mercy of people for begging for food, trying to find some scraps of clothes to wear, having nowhere to live, no one to take care of them. Just the physical needs were, were immense. And then the, the, the emotional needs of not having anyone to love them and put their arms around them and comfort them when they're hurt and, and be with them. It was the most terrifying thing in the world and to, to be an orphan. And so Jesus is really saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but in, 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 in short order, you're, you're going to feel as hopeless and as helpless, perhaps, as orphans. And frankly, some of us in this room have felt that way at times. And if we haven't, we may. And so Jesus uses a very powerful phrase and a really amazing word picture. I'm not going to leave you as orphans because he says why. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, 
you will also live. Jesus is saying, look, you're going to go through some times here that it's going to appear like there's no hope. It's going to appear like all is lost. It, it's going to appear like you're, you're as hopeless and as helpless as orphans. And you need to understand what it appears is not what it is. That is something we need to preach to ourselves as believers in Christ every day because we forget it every day. What it appears is not what it is. What it appears is not what it's going to be. What it appears is not the final chapter. And Jesus says, you can know this because I will live. Because I live, you will live. Have you ever questioned whether we really, really die and really live after death? Is there really life after death? Is that just hopeful, wishful thinking? Is, is that really true? And the Bible is so abundantly clear that, yes, it's literally true. And Jesus is the most clear about it of all. And he basically makes it clear here and in many other places. You know you're going to live after death because I have lived after death. And believe me, it wasn't long after this until the disciples saw him. Do you remember when they were in that upper room on Sunday night after the resurrection? It did not look good for the church. Jesus had pulled these 12 together about three years before and really, really poured into them about 18 months before, almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it comes to the climax of his death and they don't run out. And, and his resurrection, even though none of the disciples had physically seen him alive, the women had, and they reported firsthand they had seen him alive on Sunday morning. James and John, Peter and John had looked at the tomb and seen that it was empty, but they also knew that the Sabbath was over and the Romans and the Jews were no doubt round up the followers of Jesus and imprison or kill them too. And so they're terrified behind these locked doors, although they knew the locked doors were not going to keep out the Roman Empire. But they did the best they could. So Sunday night, there they are. They're not out on the street proclaiming the good news of Jesus. They're not out on the street proclaiming the establishment of his church. They're not out there simply terrified. That's how some of you and I are at times. We're just kind of behind locked doors. We huddle up in a church or in a little subculture and just hate the world and fear the world, wish the world would go away. You remember when John... And John and his brother James, the sons of thunder, when they ran into some hostilities, people who weren't respect, receptive to Jesus early on, and John and his brother said, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and consume these people? <laughs> and before you think they're just kind of weird guys, there's some images in the Old Testament of God doing that to his enemies. And so I think James and John were feeling like, hey, we'll kind of show that we know the Bible and this is what God does, so would you like that to happen? And Jesus, no doubt, just went, I got a lot of work to do here. You know, I had a lot to do. No, we're not going to call down fire from heaven and destroy the enemies. But you know, sometimes, church, when you and I say, man, this world's so bad, it's so wicked, I just wish God would take us home and destroy the whole thing. You're saying the same thing that James and John said when they said, let's just call down fire from heaven and destroy it all. You're saying the same thing. You're missing it too. 
So there they were behind locked doors, locked doors for fear of the Jews. And something happened. Jesus appeared in their midst. And, he, and when he appeared in their midst, they were surprised. But when he showed them his hands and his side, the scripture says they were overjoyed. Why? Because then they knew he wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a dream. He wasn't a vision. He was real. He was alive. This was a dead man who was alive. And they burst out of that room and the world turned upside down. And you and I are here today because God used their testimony and the testimony of every believer since then for 2,100 years till you and I became followers of Christ. And we've gathered in this church in Linwood because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he lives. That changes everything. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're going to live because I live. I have a friend of mine who every day tweets this every day. Jesus is alive and that changes everything. I'm going to tell you what. Jesus is alive and that does change everything. But I will not leave you as orphans. I love what Spurgeon says about this. Are you ready? You're going to hear it anyway. Spurgeon says orphans don't have any food. And they didn't in the first century. They didn't have any there weren't any place they could go eat. There wasn't any, any, any government assistance. There was no food. Food was a major issue. You were going to die if you didn't eat in short order. And you just had to beg and look for scraps. And Orphans didn't have any food. We're not left as orphans. I don't care what situation you're in. You've got the bread of life. You can feed every day on God's amazing word. You can hold it in your hands. It's not illegal to hold. It's not illegal to read. You can listen to it however you want to listen to it. All kinds of ways online. You can, you can listen to the word of God every day. You can read his word. We can feed on him. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're not an orphan because orphans are hungry. You can't be hungry because you have God's word. That's why you're not an orphan. You have it all. How often we, we don't read it. How often we don't feed upon it how often we become spiritually emaciated because we're feeding on everything else other than his word but i'm not leaving you as orphans orphans have nothing to eat you can feast at my table you can read my word all day every day you can wake up at night when you're frustrated and frightened and open it and read it A few years ago, an individual I had never met was in town for a while, but we had some mutual friends. He texted me. He said, you don't know me, but I need a favor to ask. And here are the people. And I knew who he was, just didn't know him personally. I need, a, I need a ride somewhere today at a certain time. I'm in Kansas City. Okay. So I went and picked him up. Turned out he had only been two weeks out of rehab for drug and alcohol. And he was in AA, and he was in the period where he had to go to a meeting every day for, I think, 30 days or something like that, wherever he was. And he was traveling around the country because of his job. And so I took him to that, that AA meeting and waited outside until it was completed, and then he came back out. And we began to talk about his life and his struggle his many struggles, his entire life. And then he left town. Sometime later, I'm at a Lifeway bookstore. And this is for everybody online, back when we had Lifeway bookstores. But anyway, I'm at a Lifeway bookstore. 
And I just, I was just looking at different books, and I just noticed a book there. Uh, Rick Warren has a wonderful organization called Celebrate Recovery that I, I think has been very helpful in helping people overcome addictions from a biblical standpoint. This wonderful book on from Celebrate Recovery about overcoming addictions from a biblical standpoint. Now, I don't really know this guy. He might think it's a little, I don't, but whatever. So I, I took the book, and I bought it. And I, I messaged him, texted him, and said, I'd like to send you something. And he gave me a post office box, so apparently he didn't really want me to give his address. <laughs> he gave me a post office box. And uh, in order not to seem like it, maybe he was forced or I, I put some barbecue sauce and other things in there, make it like a gift box, right? So anyway, sent it to him. I didn't hear, didn't hear a word forever. But about six weeks later, he, he called me and... Uh, he said, I got to tell you this story. And so he told me the story briefly. But then I ran into him again. Hadn't seen him. This was 2018. Hadn't seen him for four years. Ran into him again this week. He said, I, I, need, I need to sit down. I need to tell you something. I said, okay, fine. He said, after I left you, he said, I, 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 I relapsed big time. Got back to my old habits. He said, it became really bad. I'd never had a relapse as bad as the one I had. And I was completely out of my mind and completely hopeless. He said, even, I even brought my gun out and had it on the kitchen table. I was done. I couldn't do this anymore. He lived in a small town, and the postmaster knew him. The postmaster called him and said, look, you got this package been here 31 days. You don't come pick it up. I want to send it back. He said, for some reason, I just decided I'd go pick it up. He said, it was your package. He said, opened it up. There was that book. And the book's about this thick. He said, I opened up the book, and right there in the middle, it talked about relapses and what God can do in your relapse. He said, changed my life. He said, I read that book every day. He got into God's word. He's been clean and sober. I mean, I don't even know the guy, really. But it's, it's the word of God that can change people's hearts. I want you to know that. I know I'm spending too much time on these stories, but when you get to be my age, you've just got lots of stories. wish I had a picture of it. I should have, should have sent it to Amy. I got this amazing picture. When I was at Warnell, we decided we were going to hang. We did, we've done that here. We've done it here at, at Linwood. It just, there's not as many people in Linwood as there is in Kansas City, so it didn't take very long. We've hung Bibles on every door in Linwood. Right? Remember you all did that? When I was in Kansas City, we decided to go within a, a, a two or three mile radius of our church. It'd be like 10,000 people. We were going to hang the Bibles on 10,000 doors. And over about two or three year period, we did it. Didn't get a whole lot of response from that. Didn't get any hate mail. That was, that was kind of good. You know, so was, you know, we hung Bibles there. They were nice, well, you know, New Testaments that were sure to told people how to find Christ. And, but about three years after hanging the first Bible... This lady calls our church and she says, I understand you've got some Bible studies in our neighborhood. Yeah, we do. So we told her where one of them was near her house. And she shows up at this Bible study and she's got this little paperback Bible that we gave her. I, I got a picture of it. I, I'll go home today. I'll find it. I'll put it on my Facebook if you want to look it up and see it. And, and it was every word of it was underlined. It, it was highlighted everywhere. It was dog-eared. It was, this woman had gone through it with a fine-tooth comb. And she said, you know, I've been looking at this for about three years and reading it. I really think I want to know more about this. And so she showed up at the Bible study. 
God's word, you have no idea. I will not leave you as orphans. You have the word of God to feed on. And it's really, it's food you can't imagine. It's food that can save your soul. It's food that can sustain you through all kinds of things. It's food that can save your life. Orphans have no food. Secondly, and I won't take this long with all of them, orphans have no shelter. They have no protection from the elements, no protection from the cold and the wind and the rain and no shelter. Oh, my goodness, we have the shelter of Jesus Christ. We have the shelter of the cross. We, we have this cleft in the rock where we can, we can be. What a glorious thing. You know, the uh, Tople who wrote the, the song, uh, you know, the old rugged cross and, and, and just that wonderful, the wonderful words that are in there and, and how in the cleft of the rock and apparently... He was, he was in a storm one day and out in the woods and, and he found this little cave, this little outcut. And, and to get out of the storm, he, he, he got in that little cleft in the rock and he felt the protection of that. And it reminded him of, of the power and the majesty of God and how God protects him. And you, you're not without shelter from whatever life can throw at you. Whatever it comes as a child of God, you have his covering on you. You literally... And I mean this, and it's hard for me to fully understand it, and I'm not going to try to explain it, because this side of heaven, I can't fully understand it. But the scripture makes it clear that there are things going on all around us that we can't see, and there are angels around us that we can't see. And I do believe we are protected. I don't believe you have a particular one guard angel that hangs out with you your whole life. I don't think the scripture says anything like that. But I think we do have a shelter Nothing's going to happen to us that God is not aware of and God is not allowed to ha happen. Remember when Satan, when Jesus was talking to Peter and Peter said, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has asked me if he can shake you to the core. Let's marinate on that for a minute. Satan asked Jesus, can I shake Peter to the core? Jesus said, yeah, but I'll be with him. Even in the times you're shaken to the core, he is aware of it. And as that song says, he'll be with you. You're not an orphan because you're not out there in the elements all on your own. You have the shelter of his love. You have the shelter of his care. You have the protection of his angels. You're not an orphan because, again, not only do you not have shelter, but orphans have no one to protect them. I mean, if you're a, a nine-year-old orphan, then a 15-year-old orphan could take all your food, could take all your clothes. If you're a young, young orphan, some adult could come and abuse you, and you couldn't fight them off. You couldn't defeat them. You have no one to protect you. That is not the case. You have a great and mighty captain who is great in battle, who has never lost a battle and never will lose a battle, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why we can follow him into every battle. That's why I can live confident and assured that I will never lose a battle because he is the one fighting on my behalf. It's not me. He's fighting it. And he has been successful and he will always be successful. I could have no greater champion. I could have no greater guardian. I could have no greater protector than God of the universe. I am not an orphan. Because I have plenty to eat. I am not an orphan because I have shelter in his arms. I am not an orphan because I am protected by the God of the universe, my great and mighty captain, Jesus Christ. And I am not an orphan because I am not wearing rags. I am wearing the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. I'm clothed in his righteousness. Oh, I may look like a mess, 
When I first, my first big job I had in denominational life, I was in my 20s down in Atlanta, and my boss, someone was going to meet me at, at, uh, at a restaurant, and they said, what, well, how do I know what he looks like? This is before we had iPhones, there wasn't any pictures, and my boss said, well, he just looks like an unmade bed, so uh, I may not... <laughs> I mean, I dress up pretty good on Sunday, but other than that, it isn't all that great. And I, I, I may not look like much, and you may not look like much, and you may not wear the finest clothes, and you may not have the best clothes, and the world may look at you and me and think you don't really dress well and you don't have... But the truth of the matter is, when God looks at you and He's the only one that matters, He sees the glorious, perfect clothing robe remnant of His beloved Son. When the, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the prodigal son woke up to his sin and God opened his eyes and he was ready to repent of his sin and return home to his father, he was a man no doubt covered in filth. We don't really understand in that first century time how you didn't have a change of clothes. You wore your clothes until they wore off of you. And this young man had spent all of his money. He had nothing to even to eat. So he, he had to go work in the pig farm and feed the pigs. And he was so hungry, he was fighting for the pigs for what to eat. Can you imagine what he looked like in his clothing? Now, I know when he left town, he left with all of his father's money. So he probably went and got a brand new set of clothes and probably a brand new chariot. He probably looked pretty good leaving town. But coming back, he had nothing. And he was probably just barely covered with rags. And they were covered with the stench and the soil of pigs. And by the way, the scripture says, Jesus said the father went out to meet him. The father went out to meet him. You know why the father went out to meet him while he was still a long way off? Because he was going to have to walk through the village. And he would have been the object of scorn. Oh, there's that kid that took his dad's money. Look, we told you he'd come back like this. Wonder what his dad thinks. His dad didn't make him do that. His dad ran out there and put his arm around him and walked through the town with him. That's how much God loves you and all of your brokenness and sin. And then when his dad brought him back, the young man repented. His dad said, fine, I, I accept that. We're going to have a party. We're going to kill a fatty calf. And then he told his servant, he said, go and find the best robe in the house and put it on him. Who owned the best robe in the house? The father. Put my robe on him. You're not an orphan. You're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're not an orphan. You're protected by God of the universe. You're not an orphan. You're sheltered in the arms of his love. You're not an orphan. You're fed daily by the bread of Christ and by the meat of his word. I will not leave you as orphans. It may appear as that, but what it appears is not what it is. And you will know this is true, he says, because I will live again. And because I live, you also will live. What the world needs today from the church of Jesus Christ is people who don't act like they're orphans, but act like they are children of God. And in the midst of pain and sorrow and suffering and confusion, we are confident that the world is not our home. 
We are confident that he will never leave us or forsake us. We are confident that our salvation has been purchased and cannot be taken away. And we are confident that the grave is not the end. It is the vestibule to heaven. It is the opening to eternal life. As Jesus defeated sin, death, and the grave on our behalf, we live in his victory. You're not an orphan today. Those who've gone on in Christ are with him. Those of us who will leave this world will be with him. And even in the midst of your pain and sorrow and suffering, anxiety and perhaps even poverty of this world, you're a child of the king. My father is rich in houses and land. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hand. Of rubies and diamonds, emeralds and gold. He has beautiful riches untold. I'm a child of the king, a child of the king. Thank God Almighty, I'm a child of the king. Father, may you bless us with the reading and the preaching of your word to our hearts today. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans. Forgive us when we behave as though we are. May we show this world of brokenness and hate and anger and fear that we live as people confident in who you are and what you've done, and that they can too. May we share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world that needs to hear it, knowing that just as it saved the life of that man I sent your word to, it can save any life who opens themselves up to it. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.